Welcome to Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm speaking directly to all New Zealanders today. A neutral political podcast for Kiwis. Today we've one new case of COVID-19 to report and managed isolation. I'm your host, Steve O'Early, and aim to create non-biased discussion about issues affecting Aotearoa, New Zealand. You look at what this government is doing to business, strangling the supply of skills through immigration, fair pay agreements, extra costs, minimum wage increases, extra... Pod Defend New Zealand is released monthly, and I interview people from all corners of the political spectrum. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to February's episode of Pod Defend New Zealand. I'm your host, Steve O'Ealy. Thanks, as always, for supporting neutral political commentary in New Zealand. One of the inspirations for the show is the Opportunities Party, whose policies are based on evidence of what works overseas. I thought it would be good to interview the founder of that party, Gareth Morgan. He's a businessman, holds a doctorate in economics, is a philanthropist, and a temporary politician. He was one of the early investors in TradeMe and is probably most famous for saying that cats should be banned in New Zealand. Ever wonder what a successful businessman does with his time and money? You'll learn a bit about Gareth's career, why he started the top party, as well as what he'd do if he were elected Prime Minister. This includes his reasons for introducing a property tax, why universal basic income is better than the benefit, and how he'd reward eco-friendly businesses. Starting the conversation on a light-hearted note, I joined Gareth talking about his trip around the world in his bike with his wife, Joanne. Well, that began almost by accident in 2001. We've done a lot of motorcycling, both together and separately in New Zealand, and we decided we'd try overseas, and so we went for a three-week jaunt up the Himalayas in an organised group, and we thought we really enjoyed it. So one of our friends, actually, who was on it said, why don't we do the Silk Road? And we said, what's the Silk Road? (laughs) So, you know, that was a, an auspicious start. Anyway, by 2005, we'd done the Silk Road from Venice to Sanadu, which is just above Beijing. And from yep. then on, we were hooked. And so three to four months every year, right through the 2019, we'd just get on motorcycles and ride. We ended up doing almost half a million kilometres, 140 countries. Half um, a million? Yeah, just under. I don't know if it's possible on Earth. <laughs> well, you know, there's a lot of backtracking. And um, we were just about to go and do West Africa when COVID hit. And so that one's still... But that would have been the last of the really big rides. We'd already gone up through Africa, Cape Town to London, but I wanted to go around the West. We might still do it. We'll see. We just got hooked, basically, and it gave yeah. us a, a real diversion away from life just in New Zealand, working life in New Zealand. Made each year a lot fuller and enjoyable. We ended up writing six travel books, actually. But the main benefit, apart from the joy from the solitude of writing, was really our own education about foreign lands and peoples, their living environments and their customs. And we pretty quickly grew to learn that life in New Zealand is the exception, not the rule. Most of the world is so different to what we think is normal. Travel does make you a lot more open-minded, I think. Yeah, especially in those countries with no infrastructure. And you think, well, you know, I can press my electric start and in a couple of days I'll be off the Tibetan plateau, but these people are in this yurt for, for life, you know, and those yaks outside are 
that's their living for life. And you suddenly realise how exceptional your circumstances are. Yeah. You know, we're pretty lucky in New Zealand, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, amazing. In terms of a lucky life, I thought rather than give a sort of classic bio of you and and run through your entire career, I thought it might be um, nice for you to share a couple of the highlights of your career. Gosh, there's been so many different things I've done. (laughs) Well, obviously getting the PhD, that was the first highlight. That was fun because it was, you know, in economics, which is definitely professionally, that's my love because it's all about people's behaviour and how they make choices and trade-offs and all that sort of stuff. So economics is definitely a highlight. I suppose I did a couple of things early on. I had Infometrics, which we started that, which was a consultancy and and that went pretty well, you know, basically taking economics to the boardroom, which was a lot of fun right through the, the crash of 1987 and, and all that. I got a bit of sick of listening to myself, to be honest, because <laughs> the whole business was based around seminars, two-hour seminars that I did, and I'd quite often go on tours and average four of those a day. And it's pretty exhausting, definitely a young person's activity. Yeah. And was I probably did it for about... Kids? But yeah, yeah. So Joanne was running the family. I was noted by my absence, really, in terms of being on the road. It was a real division of labour there. But, you know, the business was pretty successful, very successful. But I got bored, and so because it was successful, I had quite a bit of money from that, actually, and so I spent increasing amounts of my time managing it. And my business partner... Andrew Garvis said to me, well, you spend so much time doing that, why don't you just set up a funds management company? I thought, shivers, Andrew, that's a bloody good idea. Yeah, that'll make money while I sleep, won't it? You know, I won't have to be yapping all day. I can just do it and it'll make money. And that's exactly what I did. So that was pretty cool. And by then, we had quite a pot of dough because Sam had done, our son Sam had done Trade Me, and Jesse, our daughter, had done Trade Me, so money wasn't an issue in the family. It was fantastic. And How so, much involvement did you have with Trade Me? Well, I provided their first money, <laughs> so it's quite critical. And I was on their board. I mean, Sam needed a he needed a server, and he had no money, so Mum and Dad helped. And we did a bit of this marketing, which was putting business cards under people's windscreen wipers in supermarket parks until we got shooed off, and that sort of stuff is what we did. It was pretty much a family effort, actually. His, his sister Jessie was pretty instrumental in it all as well. Yeah. Anyway, so after that whole saga, trade me into selling the Gareth Morgan investments, I then set up Morgan Foundation, and that was did a whole lot of stuff. But I suppose for me, one of the big highlights in there was all the policy work it did, and we did um, half a dozen books on policy. It started with a climate change book called Poles Apart, which was all about the science of climate change, trying to understand it whether it was fact or fiction sort of thing. Then we did Appetite for Destruction, which was a book on nutrition and the damage that high-energy, low-nutrient food did. Did another one on Treaty of Waitangi. That was awesome, that book. I did that with Susan Guthrie, and that was called Are We There Yet? And it made you really realise that the treaty is absolutely a living document. It goes on forever, and in my view anyway, we still haven't got our heads around Article 2 of the treaty properly yet, which is the carve-outs, you know, in other words, those assets that primarily belong to Maori, and how do we share those or get use of those, and a bit of success in fishing, but beyond that, water, for example, is still on the to-do list. 
The fourth one was a book called The Big Kahuna, which was on economic reform, and that was all about how can you build a prosperous world for New Zealand based on fairness, and it really came down to reform in the tax system. So there was a lot of work done on that book. Um, so what was the purpose of having policy for the foundation in the first place? Public interest, so that, you know, public policy is policy that's developed for the public interest, and how it tends to be done as people work in silos, obviously, you know, the health professionals work in one silo and the professionals in the treasury work in another one and primary industries for MPI, they work in another one and so on. And so I was trying to get across all the main areas with those policy books and with an idea that I knew what best practice was in each of the areas. I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I didn't have any ambition at the time to do anything with it. I was just learning. And, you know, it was good fun because, you know, a book like Health Check, which was a review of the New Zealand health system, I mean, we knew the theory of public health. But then when you went out and tested that in the hospitals with the nurses and the doctors, you really got the supply-side response and you learned a hell of a lot from the difference between the, the theory and the practice. So, yeah, that whole policy area, public policy, was definitely a highlight. It was hell of a lot of fun. Worked with a and lot of good people. And in terms of doing that policy work, is that what sort of led you to deciding to start the Opportunities Party or better known as TOP? Yeah, well, it was really, that TOP thing was really the culmination of a lifetime's interest in policy. As I said, I thought I had a pretty strong handle on what was best practice in most of the important policy areas. And I decided that before I closed that sort of chapter of my life, I wanted to test what the appetite was amongst the voters for best practice policy, best practice being that which derives the greatest national benefit. So that was why TOP was formed. I discovered pretty quickly during the political experience, which was nine months actually, felt like nine years, was that policy is actually not that important in the mindset of the voting public. In a country like New Zealand, the Nats and the Labour people are pretty, pretty similar you know, just different shades of grey. And the voters generally love, taken as an aggregate, obviously, love no change, especially changes that might test their ability to adapt. They want to be left alone. So really, given that reality, because we're comfy here, you know, we're incredibly comfortable. Of course, there's exceptions. There's a generalisation and a relativity to other places in the world. So really, New Zealand politics, it seemed to me, was pretty much about window dressing not about transformational change. And you can see that during our campaign in 2017, because as soon as Andrew Little stood aside and Jacinda took his place, 15% of the electorate moved its vote in two weeks. Yeah, I noticed that. It was unbelievable. And a similar thing had happened when John Key took over from Don Brash in the Nats, you know, six years earlier. So you realise that what really mattered in terms of polls wasn't the policy, it was the leadership and the so-called X factor and all that sort of stuff. It, I mean, it almost feels to me like high school presidential election or whatever they do at high schools in America where it's a popularity contest. It's, yeah, yeah, the most it's popular a popularity. Student. No, that's right. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. My issue, I suppose, with the politics anyway is that I had no intention personally of entering parliament. Unfortunately, New Zealand's democracy is a representative democracy. It's not necessarily whoever presents best practice policy. It represents a whole lot of things. Your representative you know, reflects a whole lot of things about your values. So I had no choice but to have a party 
and other members of the party. I tell you what, it's bloody hard to get good quality people to, to form a political party, even an established one, let alone one just coming out of the blocks. So I had always had the intention, which I tried to tell people over and over again, if we got over 5%, I wouldn't have gone into Parliament. That's why I was only on the list. I would have let the next guy go in. My interest was getting better policy. I didn't want a job. Yeah. One of the frustrations anyway, yeah. I had with your campaign in terms of how it was viewed in the media is there wasn't much interest in the fact that it was evidence-based policy and the media sort of focused in on one issue, which was your perspective on cats. <laughs> and, I, and I know we yeah. can't talk about top without talking about cats, but regardless of your viewpoints or anyone else's viewpoints on whether or not we should have cats in the household and in the suburbs, I guess the frustration is that there isn't the focus on policies and they sort of target newsworthy stories. Yeah, yeah. And that actually happened with the cat thing. I remember when I did that, I launched that campaign, Cats to Go, and the <laughs> next morning I got on a plane to China as it happened, and I picked up the, whatever, the Shanghai Daily sitting in the cafe in China, and there on the bottom of the front page was an article about this, this economist from down under who had advocated that all cats be destroyed. So how was that for cut through? One was this a Chinese newspaper, did you Chinese, say? on the banks of the <laughs> Shanghai, of the river in Shanghai, on the bottom. Yeah. It was, I said to Joanne, Shivers. <laughs> you know, I spent my whole working career on economics and a week on cats and look what's going to go. <laughs> I mean, the whole cat thing's still out there, of course, because they're our major apex predator of our wildlife. And, you know, you think of things like predator-free Miramar, which is a suburb in Wellington, and they're all patting themselves on the back how they've got with it, stoats and mice and, and rats and that. And yet the cats are all wandering free. Yeah. <laughs> you know, talk about hypocrites. And I think that campaign's taken about four million bucks to make that peninsula safe for cats to kill. And so, you know, New Zealand has got a long way to go yet. We're well behind Australia on the cat thing. Anyway. In terms of going back to your comment, in terms of the people kind of just wanting that stability and, you know, the, the shift when Andrew Little left and Jacinda took over and there's a 50% change in voting all the polls, sorry. Do you believe that genuine democracy still exists in New Zealand? No, not really, because it's representative. So it comes down to tribal party politics very much. I mean, you've got high percentages of people that never change their votes. You know, 30% of people will always vote national, 30% will always vote Labour. It's a tribal thing. So that's... But, you know, I mean, the MNP thing's quite good because, as we've seen with Winston Peters, the tail can wag the dog to a certain extent. So you don't need to be the dominant party like you did have to under first-past-the-post. Yeah. So I think that's helped... Definitely. But I, I would like to see more application of the Swiss system of direct democracy where, you know, they have a few more referenda, yeah. binding referenda, and they just, you know, go out on a, like stuff like marijuana, for example, you know, they go out with a specific policy plank and they campaign on it, whatever, and people then vote and whatever they vote happens rather than, oh, well, John Key's my man or Jacinda's my leader or whatever. That sort of dilutes the potency of individuals' influence on policy. Anyway, we only got two, two and a half percent, so I didn't. I was never troubled with not having to go into Parliament. I was told that for nine months' effort, that was pretty good. Yeah, there was no way I was hanging around for another three years to be 
a long term like Winston. Just going back to the comment about Winston and just to sort of counter what you were saying, I kind of feel like with MMP, you give the power to 5% of people that voted for New Zealand first and then the majority of people don't get represented at all. Like I feel like it gives disproportionate power to that kind of like small party that just happens to be in the middle of between Labour and National. Yeah, and Jim Anderton's alliance had that too for a while that same sort of inordinate influence, which is really the argument for more direct policy and not representative policy. Uh, representative politics. You see what I mean? Where you actually, yep. that's the Swiss system. I think you yep. can integrate the two. I think you can have a representative parliament, but on certain issues, a certain range of issues, and you've got to do it so many times in a term, that's a decision directly for the voting public to make. Not the politics, yeah. not the representatives. That would be good. I think that would make people more interested and feel more included. Yeah, and I think the referendums that we have had recently, whether or not you sort of felt like they should have gone through or not, I think it was good to have very specific things that were passed or, or the opportunity for them things to be passed. Yeah. So we've started to see a bit of it. I'd like to see a lot more, is all I suppose I'm saying. So with all the, the work that you have done on policy, if you happen to go back into politics and become Prime Minister in a certain scenario and you could change three things, what would they be? Well, the biggest one I think that's been proved now, it didn't take long, was that we need to change the tax income tax system so that all forms of income are taxed in the same way. And the biggest omission from income is the income you make by benefit of owning your house which is not the capital gain. It's the fact that you effectively get your rent paid for you out of tax-free money. So let me explain it more. I had a lot of trouble explaining this during the top campaign. If you've got half a million dollars and you put it in the bank, you make a rate of interest, you pay tax on it. If you've got half a million dollars and you buy a house with it, you enjoy a rent-free house and you you don't pay any rent and you don't pay any tax. That's not fair. They're both assets delivering. They're both permanent assets delivering a benefit. They should both be taxed. And, you know, this is not a new idea. This was raised with the McLeod Tax Task Force. Oh, God, I can't even remember when it was. In the 80s, and there's been three tax task forces since, and they've all recommended it. And the politicians of the day, whether it's John Key or Jacinda, have rejected it. And you wonder why we own half a dozen houses each because it's the best form of tax-free income you can get. Yep. And, th- and that, of course, has pushed housing out of the reach increasingly of any first-home buyer who doesn't have a um, mummy and daddy who can give them the money to get into the market. And it doesn't only do that. It distorts where the investment flows go. So they go into housing instead of into businesses that you yep. know generate genuine, sustainable wealth for New Zealanders. It's been very dumb. By yeah. successive governments of either hue, it doesn't matter. And they just keep saying we'd never win an election if we did that. But then, Which is probably right, but the, what are they in politics for? But I don't answer. even know if they Talk, wouldn't yeah. win an election because by basic maths, I don't think the majority of New Zealanders own a house. And so if Labour, who got voted in on the promise of a capital gains tax, yeah. Yeah. well, actually, to be fair, I think they actually did say they weren't going to to put it in but in terms of that whole you know tax on your house 
or the capital gains or just that getting taxed on an annual basis. Yeah, five rates. Yeah, so I had this discussion with a friend of ours who's managed to somehow buy a house in Auckland. And they were arguing that, you know, we're already paying so much interest on our mortgage. How can we afford to pay tax on top of that? But my sort of rebuttal to that was that we've got to the stage where housing is so unaffordable that actually now if you were to tax someone on top of their mortgage repayments, it probably would be too much. But if this rule had been put in place... 20 years ago, I don't think Auckland house prices would be over a million. I think they'd probably be sitting at 200,000. No, I agree with that. What I would add to it is it's never too late to do it. And what you do is you stage it. In other words, you phase it in over maybe even over two decades. But merely the signalling of it will take the heat out of the housing speculation. You know, So if I keep buying houses just because I know it's a tax-free way to make money, and I know that slowly but surely my tax liability is going to go up from that practice, then I'll, I'll look elsewhere, if you know what I mean, yep. to do my investment. Yes, yeah, so I agree with that. You couldn't just bring the whole thing in. And we never had that on top. We always had it phased in so that the signalling was there and people adjusted their behaviour. And in the end, they own more, more of their portfolio is in cash-generating assets and less of it is in um, something like housing, which, of yep. course, means that house prices would then fall, especially relative to income. And that, I'm afraid, is where the voting democracy in New Zealand will say we're not voting for that. Okay, Jack, pull up the ladder. So this is where I'm interested in your perspective being an economist. There's a lot of talk about the fear of house prices dropping if, you know, rules were to be put in place. How bad would it really be for the economy if there was something equivalent to a capital gains tax or some sort of tax on housing that meant that people no longer wanted to invest in housing and we saw a drop or crash in house prices? Well, I think what the last thing you want is a crash in house prices, which comes back to my point that you must phase it in. So, you know, it's a bit like when they phased in raising the age of eligibility for superannuation. You know, you don't just do it overnight because you catch a whole lot of people who are planned for a different set of circumstances and haven't yep. got any chance to get out of it, that would be exactly the same with this. So you would bring this in over 10 years, but you would immediately, on day one, take the heat out of house prices, and yep. they would level and allow time for incomes to catch up, if you get my drift, so that the real cost of housing comes down. So, yeah, I, I mean, I accept totally the last thing you want to do is crash the housing market. But unfortunately, the politicians don't even want to address it because they take the view that at the margin that's a um, killer for them in terms of getting into power. So you've, that's your first thing on your list as Prime Minister. What's <laughs> number two? I probably want to replace mainly, not completely, but substantially replace targeted social welfare with a UBI. And the main reason for that is there's a lot of people who are eligible for different specific benefits who don't even know about it. They can't get through the paperwork to qualify you know, they're not yep. strong advocates there. It's a wee bit like the issue with Maori and the vaccines. You know, people say, you know, non-Maori people say, what the hell's wrong with Maori? You know, why don't they just go and get vaccinated? But they don't realise that it's a, it's been presented to Maori in a very Pākehā way. Yep. Just come to your local GP. Well, they don't have a bloody local GP to begin with, sort yep. of thing, or they can't get there and that sort of thing. So... 
I think with social welfare is that on steroids. So you get a lot of people who are, who are eligible but are excluded from a targeted system. So I would like to see far more of that being role being done by UBI because immediately you get the criticism, well, how is that going to be paid for? It's paid for by flattening the income tax regime so that you, that's one side of it. And the other side is something like New Zealand superannuation wouldn't be as generous. It would only be to the extent of the UBI. You get my drift. I mean, I get New Zealand superannuation. My wife gets New Zealand. What a joke. You know, yep. that's just terrible, really. You know, yep. what's that about? Yeah, so that would be the next thing is the, is the UBI. Just to go uh, before you go back to your last one, I'll just uh, quickly add that for those people who don't know what a UBI is, it's a universal basic income, and you could probably explain it better than me. But my understanding of it is that everyone gets a set amount of money, regardless of whether you work, regardless of your circumstances. It's just a kind of like a safety net. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's a level that you can't fall below. At the moment, where the level in theory you can't fall below is zero. And the government endeavours through targeted benefits to get you off zero so you don't starve to death. My point is that they have varying success with targeting welfare. It's very costly to administer and it's very inefficient in actually reaching the targets because people manipulate the system so that they qualify, you know, that sort of thing. So it's just a far more, it's a far cheaper and more efficient way of delivering income to people who need it. Okay, and the last one would be just to have general principle of polluter pays, so all pollution should incur a corrective tax. So rather than private profits but public costs pollution, you privatise the cost of pollution. And that would change the relative price structure so that polluting activities, the products from polluting activities would become a lot more expensive and yep. the products from non-polluting would be far cheaper. It's completely tax neutral. You just yep. use the income from one to subsidize the other effectively. Because yep. that was actually going to be my rebuttal to your idea on taxing you know, products that produce pollution is that, of course, they're going to raise the prices. But as you say, if there's a competing product that is more genuinely eco-friendly, then theoretically that should be cheaper. Yeah, and you can actually take the revenue from the first to encourage the second. We're a bit like they're doing with EVs, electric vehicles at the moment, that type of thing. Just apply that principle right across any polluting activity. So if you've got two farmers with dairy herds and one lets his cows go in the stream and shit in the stream and all that sort of stuff, then he has to pay quite a tax for that and it goes to the best practice dairy farmer. So it yep. can even stay within the industry. Just to play devil's advocate, it could potentially be quite hard to not only police but in terms of deciding what is deemed polluting. But that's public policy, isn't it? It's never easy choosing who should get a benefit and who shouldn't. You know, yep. what's the level I'm going to choose to intervene? And it's yep. the same in the health system, it's the same in the education system. Well, by goodness, it's better than doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, there will be um, flaws in it, but it doesn't make it worse than the current situation. That's what I mean, yeah. We had the same sort of policy with water use, use of fresh water as well. That you know, you had some basic rights to water, like your right to drink it. That was supplied for nothing. Tangata Whenua have a certain custodial rights, judicial rights. That, that's, that's part of it. And then thereafter, you basically water as an auction and people pay for it. Commercial users pay for it because the money they pay goes in to help the environment, to support the environment. Because the more water flows to the sea, the healthier your environment 
and that's something that I'll never forget. Who was it? Was it the Act Party? One of those guys way back said, any one drop of water that goes to the sea is such a waste. Man, that guy knew nothing about ecology. The last question I had for you was just in regards to the Morgan Foundation, which you sort of talked about a little bit. What to you has been the biggest achievements of that foundation? Well, the whole foundation sort of evolved and changed over time. Initially, the emphasis was on social development of failed states. I figured that New Zealand had a developed welfare state, so there's little role for social development monies here from the private sector. Because the danger with doing it here is that it simply crowds out state welfare, so there's no net addition. It's just a substitute. You contrast that situation to places like India, Bangladesh, Paraguay, Solomons, where the Tanzania, uh, Kyrgyzstan, all places where we have operated. And without our interventions that we've done either ourselves or with partners, there would be no assistance. There is no welfare state in those places. And so it seems to me the business case, if I put it that way, for social development, private social development funding is far, far stronger in those countries. So we did that for quite a few years I'm still doing a little bit. I mean, choosing which philanthropic endeavour to pursue is really difficult because you've got to assume that most charities or causes have got merit, but choosing them between them is really hard. So in the end, we chose products that we were able to get a great deal of satisfaction, joy or fun out of, and that became our measuring stick. So in the days that we were wandering around the world on motorcycles, that took us to many weird and wonderful sort of projects all over the place, from you know kids living on a dump in the in Paraguay to you know soccer playing funding with UNICEF and Bogota to stop the kids bloody stabbing each other to you know hospitals for the desperately poor in Bangladesh and so on. I mean it was just yeah. meant to sort of be part of that, and, and they weren't all successful. I mean you have your normal failure rate like you do in any business, so. So that was the first avenue for Morgan Foundation. I'd already talked about the public policy publishing, which was the second. And then sort of quite by accident, we ended up doing conservation because I'd been writing those books on conservation, fisheries, climate change. And then we ran a project called Our Far South in 2012, that was, where we hired a, an icebreaker, a Russian icebreaker, and went down around the New Zealand sub-Antarctic and then down to Antarctica itself. And well, I filled it with, you know, two nurses, two two policemen, two two doctors, two teachers, bloody, but just like filling up Noah's Ark, really. And then a bunch of academics who were experts in all the things like the New Zealand, uh, like the Antarctic Treaty, like climate change, like species, you know, ecology in, in the islands down there. It was a party ship at night, but during the day it was very much a university. And everybody who went was obliged to go out and spread the word about what the issues were facing our far south. And out of that came a project known as Million Dollar Mouse, where we raised a bit of money and we took the mice off the Antipodes, where there's an endemic albatross and a couple of other species. And that then led on to the formation of Predator Free New Zealand, the trust that Jesse runs these days and is a pretty serious player in the conservation state. And DOC and Morgan Foundation are the funds of that. So, you know, the whole emphasis on that of Morgan Foundation has changed as we've changed um, over time. And we're just moving into the arts now with it because I'm getting a bit of an interest in that. That's just a cool avenue to do public benefit.
So. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you've achieved a lot with it. Just before we go, where can we find out more about the Morgan Foundation? Well, there's a website called morganfoundation.org.new Zealand. That's that one. Motorcycling is all on worldbybike.com. And then my latest endeavour, which is developing this property up in Pauatoa Nui, is on a website called themorgansgolf.co.nz. It happens to have a golf course on it. Yeah, um, yeah, I saw, the, saw, saw it in your letterhead. <laughs> Yeah, but we're building a you know a sanctuary up there, an eco sanctuary, and doing a whole lot of cool stuff. So that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Defend New Zealand. If you want to find out more about this month's episode, check out the show notes or visit us on Instagram at nz underscore pod or Twitter at nz underscore pod. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a five star rating would be appreciated. Kia ora.